Midday is on the air from the Rural Radio Network, and welcome to Wednesday, as we have all the headlines ahead of us here and all the people to tell you about what you'll be hearing in the next couple of hours here on your Rural Radio Network station. I'm Dirk Christensen. Susan Littlefield, I understand there was an Ibos sighting. There was. Where and did we find Greg Ibos? Well, he's in Washington, D.C., but he did call yesterday, and there's all the new requirements and workings that went through with shipping soybeans to China. So he and I sat down via the telephone and and got a great conversation going about what it means to our producers, what education is going to have to go all the way from, you know, the folks that are shipping it out to the producers that are growing it. So we'll hear more about that at 1245. Did you ask him how he likes his new job? Yes, and you'll be hearing about that coming up in the news department because I shared the audio with them as well. And he loves it. Absolutely loves D.C. He said there's so much to do. You know, he's the Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs. Lots of things to talk about. So he's going to be joining us twice a month as we'll be getting an update from his department about what's happening, how it affects not only producers and growers in Nebraska, but nationwide. Score. Yeah, yes. Way to go. All right, Rural Radio. Yeah. What else is coming up? Of course, the unicameral started today, so we've got the Speaker of the Legislature joining us at 1219. And then Shaley's got some information about some cattle podcasts for our beef producers. That'll be coming up at 117. I would think you'd need an opposable thumb before cattle could podcast. Yeah. Hey, I I totally feel their pain. (laughs) (laughs) She does as she holds up her cast from her broken thumb. All right, we've got to Brandon over here, and you say you only have to be famous for one thing? There are so many people who have recently been made on the list of those who are finalists for the 2018 NFL Hall of Fame. People whose name you would know, Brian Erlacher and Ray Lewis and Randy Moss and others. But there is one completely marginal player who's only famous for one thing in his entire career, but it's enough to put him into at least a finalist. And that man's name is Everson Walls. He was a free safety for the New York Giants. And if you remember Super Bowl twenty-five, where the Buffalo Bills missed the last second field goal, Everson turns around in the middle of the field, puts both hands up, and starts waving to the crowd. And there's that iconic shot of him turning, looking at the goalpost, and turning to the middle of the field and just putting his hands up yeah. in victory. That's yeah. the only thing he's ever known for in his <laughs> career, and it was good enough to at least make him a, a, a major finalist for the Hall of Fame. Wow. Okay. So if you only oh, have to be good for one heavens. thing. Oh, and by the way, yeah. uh, we've talked about many times how the Powerball and the uh, other lotteries are hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. And if you have hundreds of millions of dollars, you can put your name on what's now Sports Authority Field because it's not going to be Sports Authority Field for long because Sports Authority went bankrupt. They can't afford to put their name on Mile High Stadium anymore. We'll talk about that at 1225. (laughs) That's the kind of business decision you don't want to make. Speaking of business. Yes. Stocks are a little bit higher on Wall Street. Technology companies are pulling things up. Also, construction spending is increasing. Uh, Also, the manufacturing index is rising. Auto sales will be reported today by automakers. And another thing is that uh, gas prices have gone up about five cents recently, so probably maybe you have noticed that. Uh, Might want to pay attention to that at the gas pump. A little bit of gasoline creep going on right now. And I want to know the creep who's responsible. All coming up for you today on Midday. 
Let's get our ag weather now. Paul Perkins steps in for Holdridge Irrigation, your ranky dealer. And it looks like a lot more cloudiness on the picture here from the satellite than it looks outside. What gives? Well, uh, a lot of it's just high, thin clouds, so it's a lot closer to the satellite eye. So that's probably why it is looking that way. But, yeah, like like fair amount of cloud cover overhead in our area in particular. And, this, yeah, just you could see blue sky, though. So, yeah. Um, who knows on what's we going on? We can't explain that. it, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> but uh, you know, trust us, we do have partly cloudy skies rolling in, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah, some cloud cover moving in and some light on the uh, in the horizon or down the further down the tunnel for some nicer temperatures over the next few days. But we do have some cloud cover that will track to the west today, thanks to a weak front dropping in from the northeast. Not going to be a big weather factor. That front expected to stall over western areas and be the divider between much milder air to the west and Cooler air in the east, and they're seeing some very mild air just across the border in Colorado. Northeast Colorado, temperatures right now in the low 40s. We have some upper 30s over northwest Kansas and some mid-30s on into southwestern Nebraska, including 35 right now in Imperial. Most of our temperatures right now in the low and mid-20s. That front expected to stall out and linger tonight and be the focus for some patchy fog to form in the overnight High pressure starts to take control from the east tomorrow and Friday and will lead to sunshine. That's going to be on the backside of that system that's going to be moving up the east coast. It's been grabbing a lot of headlines. We're going to stay far and away from any of that bad weather. Our temperatures will slowly warm this week, a lot closer to more seasonal levels as that front that's moving through today as a cold front moves back to the east as a warm front. But that process to warm up will be slow. The weekend looks to be the warmest in the next seven days as a ridge of high pressure pushes in from the west. Temperatures will warm to finally above freezing, at least in central Nebraska, by the weekend, if not by Friday. That will be the first time since the first day of winter on December 21st. It's been long. There will be some small rain and snow chances as low pressure tracks along the Kansas-Oklahoma border Saturday night and Sunday. Some slightly cooler air in behind that system arriving early next week with the passage of a cold front. But it won't be the Arctic blast that we've been seeing. In a long-term forecast, temperatures for Nebraska and Kansas forecast to be seasonal or near normal Monday through January 16th. And for comparison, in the early half of January, central Nebraska daytime highs are usually in the upper 30s, with overnight lows usually in the mid-teens. It will be a more active period nationwide with above-normal precipitation expected Monday through January 16th nationwide. Those higher chances of more precipitation in Nebraska and Kansas late next week through the 16th. Weather factors driving the markets include mainly dry weather in Argentina and southern Brazil and also sagging conditions for winter wheat in the southern plains. The main focus for weather here in the U.S., that rapidly intensifying storm system near the Atlantic seaboard that will produce wind-driven snow from parts of northern Florida to New England. Uh, They've had to close interstates there because of icy roads. Behind the storm, late week temperatures will again plunge across, excuse me, across the Midwest and Northeast. Temperatures, though, expected to rebound to above normal levels by Sunday in most areas west of the Mississippi River. The cold and dry weather in the Southern Plains taking a toll on the winter wheat. There may have been some limited damage to unprotected wheat in Southern Nebraska, also in Kansas and the Southwest, Central and Northeast. The cold may have also damaged wheats in parts of the Midwest. The next week to 10 days will bring some moderation in the temperatures to help out. Wheat condition ratings right now very low. In Kansas, wheat is just 37% good to excellent. That's 14 points lower than November and 7 points lower than a year ago. 
Oklahoma wheat is just 15% good to excellent. The forecast for milder temperatures will lower the stress for livestock in the Midwest and Northern Plains. In Argentina, sizable portions of major crop areas expected to undergo extreme heat and below normal rainfall. Growers also cautious in southern Brazil, where it will be drier and hotter this next week. Piranha and Mato Grosso do Sol, though, will continue with a favorable pattern. Central Brazil crop weather also favorable with periods of rain and some seasonal temperatures. Ag information or ag weather brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation, your Ranky dealer. Boy, that extreme cold with no snow has been no favors to anybody, has it? No, uh, it, that wheat does need that snow cover. You know, a lot of areas of central Nebraska had a sizable portion of snow, but yeah, the farther south you go, not the case. Yep, and this, we need that after everything that wheat has gone through in the last year, year and a half. It's exactly. No good at all. Okay. Well, that's uh, what's in store for us here as we head on into a weekend that might be a little bit warmer and reminder that when you need weather anytime you can pick it up on our app or krvn.com first trading day of the new year but was it due to a white christmas that and more to come on the rural radio network i'm clay Patton. After a dismal trading session through most of 2017, wheat producers were thrilled yesterday to see wheat leading the charge on the first day of trading in 2018. The rally being attributed to the Arctic cold front that rolled through the Great Plains over the holiday weekend. For more on the colder temperatures and how they may have affected the 2018 wheat crop, we go to Rural Radio's Chabella Guzman. The wheat market has seen a jump over the holiday weekend with most grain elevators reporting an increase. In the panhandle, Will Mahoney, grain merchandiser at Farmers Co-op in Hemingford, says the rally is due to a couple of factors. First one would be it's widely expected that uh, this January crop report will, USDA will confirm that we are going to have reduced wheat acres again this year uh, versus last year, and that would put us near record for least amount of wheat acres planted. And then also coupled with the fact of uh, so far poor growing conditions for the wheat. Too dry when it went in, been kind of absent of moisture as of late, and then uh, this bitter cold is not good for the dormant wheat crop. While wheat producers in the panhandle saw up to 15 inches of snow in some areas over the Christmas weekend, Jason Nielsen, weather forecaster at the National Weather Service in Goodland, Kansas, says they received only an inch and a half of snow, with most of it gone before the cold temperatures moved in this past weekend, opening the plants up to possible freeze damage. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm... Thank you, Chabella, for that update. Another factor that could help U.S. grains this week would be higher exports. While NAFTA trade talks look to reconvene later this month, this week the U.S. and South Korea are sitting at the trade table. Formal trade talks between the U.S. and South Korea start tomorrow as Korean officials make their way to Washington, D.C. Politico reports that trade talks will center around the potential amendments and modifications to the Korea-U.S. Free Trade Agreement, also known as CHORUS. The trade deal is only five years old. However, this is the second time representatives are sitting at the trade table. Last year's trade talks came as President Trump repeatedly criticized the trade pact and threatened to withdraw the U.S. unless changes were made. However, U.S. officials have so far not followed trade promotion authority procedures required to pursue major changes to the deal. South Korea was the third largest importer of U.S. corn during the 2017 marketing year and is currently the fifth largest U.S. agriculture export market market. 
We end on a positive note today. AuctionTime.com, the Lincoln-based online equipment auction house, capped 2017 off with a bang. They sold over $109 million worth of equipment in their month of December end-of-the-year auctions. The sales included nearly 11,000 items, primarily farm and agricultural equipment, heavy machinery, commercial trucks, and trailers. Bids came in from across the country and around the world. The four multi-day auctions received bids from over 18,000 unique bidders from all 50 U.S. states and 53 countries worldwide, including Barbados, Belgium, Belize, Peru, Poland, Saudi Arabia, and the Bahamas. Sandhills Publishing Director of News Products Evan Welch commented that AuctionTime.com's successful year-end auctions and exponential growth in 2017 overall are telling of its value to both buyers and sellers on a global scale. The platform makes it easy not only for sellers to quickly and cost-effectively list and advertise equipment at auction, but for buyers all over the world to participate in weekly online sales. Not only does this show that equipment sales look strong going into 2018, but you can retire to bar and still farm. Keep a straight row. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. The legislature is back in session. Good afternoon to you on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bryce Duskett reporting. Ahead of the 2017 legislative session, I caught up with the Speaker of the Legislature, Jim Shear. His hometown is Norfolk, Nebraska, and he represents the 19th District. Speaker Shear, thank you for being with us today. Let's start out with just an overview of the short session. Well, short session is exactly what it's called. It will be only 60 days versus the 90 days. Uh, it will be more compact and more intense. Um, we will have approximately, I would guess, a similar amount of bills that would be introduced, uh, but less time to work through any of them. So it, it uh, will be a very short, shortened period, but uh, more uh, condensed and intense in relationship to trying to get stuff done. You mentioned bills coming forward, so let's talk about a couple things that are going to be a priority, I'm sure, so far on the outside looking in that have been talked about widely. That would be property tax reform as well as the budget shortfall. So address both of those and also the rumblings you've been hearing so far. Well, uh, as far as addressing the budget deficit, uh, two things to remember. We we still have a forecasting board that will meet at the end of February. That number that they will come up in February is actually the number we will have to adhere to. So we will, uh, to a certain extent, hold off working on the budget deficit until after they meet in February so that we're actually working on the final number, just not a number uh, that we have now. And uh, I think that's the prudent thing to do if Right now, it's standing at 200 million. Uh, if in February it goes to 250 million, uh, and we worked on it in January, then we have another argument to uh, work on in March uh, of an additional 50. Conversely, if uh, we cut 200, and then at the end of February, you know, things are starting to pick up and go well, and it ends up being only 150 million, we have to reduce. Uh, well, then we've had uh, arguments over $50 million worth of reductions that we possibly may not have to make. So I think the most important thing to do is uh, to wait until they meet again. In relationship to the property taxes, there are a couple that are already uh, sitting on the floor. Uh, I know Senator Erdman uh, is going to be introducing something. I've not read the, the final uh, version of that bill, so I'm not exactly sure 
uh, all the specifics to it, uh, and I would assume that he or somebody will prioritize it so that it will get to the floor to have some discussion. You know how how far and how well it will be received and go. Um, your guess is as good as mine. Switching gears a little bit, this session will be the last for six senators who can't run again because of term limits and one who will be stepping down. Another 16 of the 49 senators are up for re-election in this coming November. How does that play into what happens in the chamber? Well, it does, uh, and I would say more from a reversal factor, uh, you have uh, 16 that are up for re-election, but then you have eight uh, that are now serving their last session and most of those will have something that's very very important to them and realizing this is the last shot they have to get that passed and so uh, it becomes even more important to them than those that are up for re-election and now not dismissing those 16 that are up for re-election because all 16 I'm sure are trying to again uh, pass legislation that is beneficial not only to the state but to their district and constituents and will be important that they try to do something this year that also reminds their district that they're doing a good job for them. That was Speaker of the Legislature Jim Shear. I'm Bryce Duskid and this is the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network and it's time to check sports with Brandon Betts. Good afternoon, Dirk. Well, a person familiar with the decision says that K-State head football coach Bill Snyder will return for his 27th season, ending weeks of speculation about the future of the 78-year-old head coach. The person spoke to the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity yesterday because Snyder had not yet made his plans public. He said after a Citrus Bowl victory over UCLA last week that he was still mulling whether to return next season or to retire for a second time. Snyder was diagnosed with throat cancer last offseason but hardly missed a practice and headed into this year with high expectations. But a series of early season losses scuttled Big 12 title hopes and it took a run at the end of the year just to become eligible for a bowl game. The Hall of Fame head coach is 210, 110, and 1 since taking over the Wildcats in 1989. Arizona Cardinals quarterback Carson Palmer is retiring after 15 seasons in the NFL. Palmer, who turned 38 last week, made the announcement in an open letter released by the Cardinals. Palmer missed the last nine games of what would be his final season with a broken left arm. He called his long professional career, quote, the most incredible experience of my life, end quote. That statement came one day after Cardinals head coach Bruce Arians announced his retirement. Arians and Palmer spent the last five seasons together. Palmer was a Heisman Trophy winning quarterback at USC and the number one overall pick by the Cincinnati Bengals in 2002. In his career, he threw for 46,247 yards, 11th most in NFL history. He is also 12th all-time in NFL passer rating and 12th all-time in touchdown passes. He began his career with the Bengals and then moved to Oakland and then finished his career in Arizona. Sports Authority field signs will be coming down soon in Denver, but the home of the Broncos isn't getting a new name quite yet. Broncos CEO Joe Ellis said yesterday that the stadium signs will be removed in the next 7 to 10 days as the team continues to look for a new signature sponsor. He said the stadium will continue to be named Sports Authority Field at Mile High for now because there are some upcoming events connected with that name. But he thinks there will either be a placeholder name or a name of a new corporate sponsor by the beginning of the next football season. Revenue from naming rights helps pay for the stadium's maintenance. And Sports Authority, which went bankrupt in 2016, was the second company to hold naming rights to the current Broncos Stadium. 
and star linebackers Ray Lewis and Brian Erlacher are among the four first-time eligible former players selected among the 15 modern era finalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2018. Receiver Randy Moss and guard Steve Hutchison also made the cut to the finals in their first year of eligibility. They joined Tony Baselli, Isaac Bruce, Brian Dawkins, Alan Fanica, Joe Jacoby, Edgerin James, Ty Law, John Lynch, Kevin Mawai, Terrell Owens, and Everson Walls for consideration. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More of Midday is just ahead. You're listening to the Rule Radio Network. Patchy fog in the forecast this evening with lows around zero in the east to around 15 above in the west. I'm Dave Schroeder. Eastbound Interstate 80 is temporarily closed at mile marker 324 near Giltner because of a non-injury accident, according to the Nebraska State Patrol. Be aware if you're headed that direction. Again, both lanes of eastbound I-80 are temporarily closed at mile marker 324 near Giltner because of a non-injury accident. The 105th Nebraska Legislature second session convened this morning at 10 a.m. Senator Matt Williams of Gothenburg gave a legislative prayer. It was preceded by a question. Today is actually the ninth day of the 12 days of Christmas, leading to Epiphany, which is this Saturday. And my prayer for each of us today is that we think about the epiphanies that we can have, the expectations, the preparation, the hope and ask ourselves each as we pray today, are we ready? In other action, lawmakers voted 25 to 24 to appoint State Senator Rob Hilkeman of Omaha to serve as the new chair of the Committee on Committees, which determines committee memberships. Nebraska could start paroling more inmates this year to relieve prison overcrowding under a bill that lawmakers will consider this session. Senator Bob Christ of Omaha introduced the bill today that would declare an overcrowding emergency if the state prison population is more than 140 percent of the system's design capacity. Declaring an emergency would force the state parole board to immediately consider all inmates who are incarcerated but eligible for parole. Board members could still decide, case by case, whether to parole inmates. Lawmakers have already established a 2020 deadline in state law for reducing the state prison population to 140% or less, so the new proposal would force state officials to work faster. Nebraska's prisons currently hold roughly 5,200 inmates in facilities that were designed for 3,200 inmates placing them at 160% of their total design capacity. A fire has engulfed a restaurant in downtown Falls City in southeast Nebraska. Station KNCY reports that other departments have been called in to help battle the blaze, which broke out this morning in a complex of buildings that include the site for Portrillo's Mexican Grill. Nearby business owners smelled smoke when they opened their doors. No injuries have been reported. The cause of the fire is being investigated. Our app puts regional, ag, national, and area news just one click away anytime. Reporting from the KRVN News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder. Starting this week, U.S. soybean exports will undergo a new procedure to meet new phytosanitary requirements for shipping to China. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. 
Greg Iba, who is USDA's Undersecretary for Marketing and Regulatory Programs, brought us up to speed on the new workings with China. So I think that, yes, I think we have a an agreement in place that will allow for uh, continued uh, uh, business as usual with the idea that uh, uh, we're working to reach the expectation of our buyers in China and the Chinese government regulator, regulators that we work with uh, to be able to address some concerns that they're seeing with regard to foreign matter, and of particular interest to them are uh, weed seeds that are, uh, as we see our bean fields uh, become a little bit more weedy. Some of those are resistant weeds, we know, of course, and uh, we uh, need to try to address those, and we'll work with farmers as well as all the way up the chain to the exporters to try to find ways to address those concerns. Now, this was work that was done as you guys sat down, shall we say, uh, to discuss this. You brought in the thoughts and concerns of soybean growers from the United States. Oh, yes. We have. uh, So when we first became aware of their concerns, we put together a working group that had a lot of different uh, interests. We had the North American Grain Export Association, the U.S. Soybean Export Council, the U.S. Grains Council, and the U.S. Feed and Grain Association, U.S. Wheat Associates, and then even within um, uh, USDA, we brought in the Agricultural Marketing Service, the Foreign Ag Service, and the National Plant Board were all part of the discussions to figure out you know, how we were going to address con- China's concerns and uh, what we were going to propose to them as our U.S. solution or our, our meeting their expectations in our meetings the first week in uh, December. So what is the process then for you guys to make notification should they exceed the, the limit that's been set? So really I think that uh, the Chinese buyers have been buying number two soybeans as well. Uh, China, I think, wants to to see their buyers move to purchasing number one soybeans over time, and this will also impact the uh, the foreign matter uh, uh, levels. And so, we're going to work together with them to uh, allow the shipments and the contracts that are in place to continue to come into China. And in the meantime, we're going to work with our producers and those organizations that face producers to make them aware of some of the expectations. I think it'll provide opportunities for uh, farmers and ranchers to look at their uh, planting practices, their herbicide choices, and and try to make some adjustments that may uh, help them control some resistant weeds in their fields a little bit better so that uh, at the end of this coming growing season that we have a product that meets not only uh, China's expectations, but meets the the pride that the U.S. farmer has in providing the best quality product available anywhere in the world. So as you guys do this farm-to-export procedure, what type of education will start right there with with the producer? Well, we're uh, going to work on this as a one USDA. That's one of the uh, uh, themes that the secretary has uh, been talking about ever since I showed up here about two months ago about working together not only within our own um, group of programs here in my mission area but working across mission areas. So we're going to 
uh, involve people with the Foreign Ag Service. We're going to involve people with the Ag Research uh, Service and uh, FSA uh, to reach across all kinds of, of ways to be able to work with Extension to be able to um, make farmers aware of uh, the, one, the, the systems approach. And from my understanding in the readings I've done, there isn't going to be a halt by any means to the purchases from China as you guys work through these procedures. No, I think that's, uh, you know, I think there were some concerns voiced originally, but as uh, the trade became more informed about uh, what the agreement actually was, I think this is a very well-crafted approach and probably because it involved uh, representatives from every facet of the of the chain, uh, the export chain in the process, but it allows for us to continue to have shipments move uh, from the U.S. to China. Of course, those shipments that are uh, premium or U.S. number one soybeans with less than one percent foreign matter will be expedited. But it also provides that China will continue to accept those number two soybeans at their purchase contracts have been purchasing as well. Anything else that you would like to add? Yeah, we're just really looking forward to working with uh, uh, individual farmers all across our nation to make them understand. I know that farmers and ranchers uh, in Nebraska and across the other states uh, you know, want to do what's best, want to maintain our export market opportunities. My conversation with Greg Ibob. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Let's get a review of the livestock futures trade next with Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Joe? Yeah, very uh, choppy day in the cattle uh, today. We finished mixed, uh, just back and forth, back and forth. Didn't uh, close uh, too far from uh, unchanged on any of the uh, cattle contracts. So it, it was uh, kind of a day of rest after yesterday. Uh, haven't heard of any uh, major trade uh, taking place. Cutouts were sharply higher once again. Kind of light on the uh, boxes, though. Again, but uh, nothing to uh, to uh, really push the market in either direction. So it, it just seemed like a day of uh, just back and forth, back and forth. Uh, both sides uh, taking uh, positions, and, and uh, so no direction uh, coming out of today's action. Over in the hogs, uh, we were higher. Cash seemed to be uh, steady higher, uh, instances uh, a, a, quite a bit higher. So the uh, futures, despite the fact that they're a premium, continue to uh, move higher, uh, but the uh, index continues to move higher also. Cutouts were uh, nearly unchanged once again, uh, and with a tendency maybe to be moving higher. So positive uh, finish in the hogs. In the cattle. Thanks, Joe. You can reach Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities, 800-328-0134. Total cattle slaughter through the first uh, couple of trading days, 227,000. Now, that's a holiday-shortened week, of course, and that's 18,000 more than last holiday-shortened week, one week ago. Hog slaughter, 907,000, 86,000 more than a week ago. 
Rural Radio Network. I'm Shaylee Peters, and joining us today, Aaron Berger, Nebraska Extension Educator, Beef Systems. Aaron, you just released the latest edition of Beef Watch with the university, and in your article this month, you address beef genetics. Of course, this is something that's very timely, as a lot of guys go to look at bulls and uh, make some big selections for their 2018 year and beyond. And so, as you look at this, you pointed out some interesting observations. Uh, talk a little bit about what you covered in this month's article. So the recent Beef Watch article is Where's Optimum is the title of the article. It's really targeted towards challenging producers to think about identifying where's their cow herd at genetically in terms of what do they have in terms of resources and how does their cow herd match their resources. And then based on that, thinking about from a genetic standpoint when they go to purchase bulls this spring, what are they looking for in terms of EPDs? Uh, what are the genetics that are going to drive the cow herd in the direction they want it to go to really match what they have in terms of available resources with genetics that can do the best from a profitability standpoint with what they have to them. So then Aaron, go into more detail on what you're recommending producers do as they start to look and evaluate their genetics in their herd. Certainly recommend people understand kind of where they're at from a genetic standpoint with their cow herd understand as they go to select bulls, what are the expected progeny differences? Those are often called EPDs that are kind of the target that they want to look for to drive that cow herd where they want to go. I think one of the things I think is challenging to us is uh, we've been able to really move genetics from a cow herd standpoint quite a bit in the last several years in terms of weaning weight, yearling weight, milk production. Uh, Sometimes I think in harsher environments, we may have pushed that of cow herd's ability beyond actually what the environmental resources can provide. So just being kind of aware of that, being aware of uh, what do I have in terms of resources, what do I need, and what can I make from a genetic selection standpoint to get my cow herd to where it should be. And you touched on this a little bit, Aaron, but as we look across the state of Nebraska, of course the landscape varies drastically, and so maybe go into a little more detail on those resources that you talked about and how that comes into play depending on where you're at in the state. Yeah, I think genetics really can be very variable in terms of what best fits resources. As you look, especially across Nebraska, if you're in the western panhandle or you're in the southeast corner, a tremendous different environment in terms of the resources available and really what might fit you. And so I think it's good to understand genetics in terms of what best fits your goals and then also tailor the selection program you utilize of buying a bull to meet that. And so then as producers make these decisions, of course, there are some tools available you talked about in the article. There are some tools available. The Angus Association has a tool that they use that can help producers think about what would be an appropriate level of milk production and also mature size based on resources available that they have to them. That can be a tool that can kind of help producers evaluate what should be uh, kind of an optimum range maybe that they should be looking for as they start thinking about selecting genetics specifically for maternal traits that will be retained in heifers that they keep in their cow herd. Okay. Anything additionally, Aaron, as I've got you on the line here today? No, I think just to understand where you're at and uh, make decisions based on what's best, uh, realizing that sometimes what best fits your resources may not be uh, the biggest and the most, but maybe somewhere in the middle. And uh, optimum is really finding what fits you and staying in the middle of the road. Thanks so much, Aaron Berger, Beef Systems with Nebraska Extension. For more, you can visit RuralRadio.com. I'm Shaylee Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network.
Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. And with us, John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. I think the story today might have been hard red winter wheat futures. How about you? Yeah, really been the story of the last three or four trading sessions. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quick to move, but we're already up from uh, the lows just Oh, the week before Christmas, we were down around uh, 430, or 440, rather, in uh, July, new crop, and now we're pushing on 470. 470 was the high uh, from the last correction in early December, so if we can break through that, we'll, we'll, we'll have broken kind of the streak of making new monthly lows uh, without making a new high, and I think that's technically a good sign. We, we failed at that close today, but, you know, the story is, is, is going to be a longer written one, and I think you're just seeing the shorts move aside right now. This isn't even kind of the into the buy streak that we're looking for, uh, a la June of 2017. Um, this is just, I think, the beginning of maybe something greater. I look for probably, if this gets taken out, a test of maybe 490, but even then we're still cheap. And you're looking at guys, uh, you know, maybe interested in selling $4 cash corn, but, or cash wheat rather, uh, given the basis what it is. Um, you might have some folks going to move it there, but I, I doubt it. Farmers still, I think, are a little uncertain, one, with how much has even been planted out there, and two, what it looks like. Well, and this positive move in wheat might transform the corn a little bit, won't it? You'd hope so. I mean, I think it's a market, just to see some volatility would be nice, uh, you know, from the standpoint of getting us out of this range. We've been at 12 cent range since mid-November on this March contract. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that's both up and down. We're kind of right in the middle of it right now, maybe towards the upper end of the range, but I think the market's just kind of sorting out, one, what the Wazi's going to look like next week and, uh, you know, what the uh, the grain stocks will look like as well. Both of those are anticipated to be bearish, uh, kind of paint the picture of supply, uh, burden, a burdensome supply uh, sitting on our hands right now. But I don't think the market needs any info to, to understand that. It sees what the basis has done. Uh, you know, the board is very short. So it's at this point, my market would be, uh, you know, looking at uh, possibly a December 18 contract, a uh, push towards $4.00. Not that far away. Uh, at that point, you're probably looking at producers selling. But I think in the shorter run here, the market just seems bored and, and not a whole lot to trade around. Will the November 18 contract spur some selling if it reaches ten dollars? I would imagine you'd see that. Beans are, I think, kind of moving into its role in the whipping post. It feels like to me, um, you know, between the Brazilian story that seems to be improving uh, and then the uh, planted acreage numbers that'll be high here in the U.S doesn't feel like supply is, uh, you know, going to be something that's going to be bullish. But demand is bullish. We have the story there out of China that we can continue to lean on. So I don't look to see the market sub $9. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst, Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to DanielsAgMarketing.com.